False Point. Hope you guys are doing well and enjoyed the extra hour of sleep this morning. Uh, children, you can be released for Children's Church. You'll see uh, our helper back there holding up the flag to uh, welcome your kids and take them to the, the, uh, their classroom. So if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 15, or in the, if you have one of these scripture journals, you'll find it on page 96, that in January, we started this series of walking with Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And, and now as we enter November, we are entering the final four messages of this series as we close out our study through this gospel. And, and last week, I'm so thankful for A.D., for him uh, preaching and sharing. It is a joy and a privilege to be able to, to preach God's Word, but it's also a joy and a privilege to sit under the authority and preaching of God's Word as well. And so I'm so thankful for him and of his word for us last week. Now, last week in his message, we saw where Jesus was illegally arrested and tried before the religious leaders. We're going to see today that not only is he rejected by the religious leaders, but then today he's going to stand before the Roman authorities and again face rejection. He'll stand before a crowd of peers who, like us, had once sang Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, on a Sunday, and come Friday morning, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. We'll see Jesus mocked and rejected. And as I've studied this passage this week, and in my own heart, of what I've been aware of is the rejection that Jesus faced then. This historical account that we're going to read that happened then continues to happen today. Like, Jesus is still questioned. He's still mocked. He's still accused. We hear the, the words, don't we? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is Jesus really the only way to be made right before God? What gives him the right? Did he ever actually claim to be God? Is he really the creator? Did he really do these miracles? We see the image of Jesus pasted on t-shirts and, and mockingly portrayed in skits and in music videos, a mockery continuing to echo the slaps in the face that we'll read about then continue to happen today. And I think that, that as we read Mark's gospel, I want to remind us of what I talked about in the beginning to help us understand something today. Right? That, that, that in reality, who wrote the, the gospel of Mark? Why was it written? What was the original intent of these words that we're going to read today? Because see, the author was John Mark. He was the scribe for, for the apostle Peter. An eyewitness. This is why throughout the Gospel of Mark, really nothing happens except when Peter is present. We see over and over that, that the Gospel of Mark was the first of the four Gospels that was written. About 20 years after these events took place, these words were written. And they were written by Mark with Peter in Rome to believers, to Christians in Rome who were enduring from the culture that, that was saying, why are you trusting this backwoods Savior? 
Don't you know if you're educated, if you're sophisticated like us Romans, then we have all of this pantheon of gods. Trust in them. Why would you trust in some Savior from Israel? And persecution was beginning to rise against these believers. And the Gospel of Mark was written. It was written to build beneath their feet a foundation of of hope. It was written to believers so that it would breathe within them a conviction, a fire of conviction. It was proclaimed so that these believers would understand the freedom of hope that they have in Christ. This is my prayer for us this morning. This was the original intent of these words. This is why they were written. And the same, I believe, is true for us today. We can live within a culture that mocks who Jesus is, that ridicules and belittles. And I pray that the words that we read today lay a foundation beneath your feet, a foundation of hope. I pray that you feel that the breath of God breathing this conviction with fire in your bones, that you understand the freedom and the hope that we have in Christ. That's my prayer out of our message today, but this is something that my words cannot persuade and my words do not have the power to to impart to you this morning. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And so like every week, this is why I want to begin with prayer, to surrender this time before God. And would we open our hearts and our minds to hear the authority of God's word this morning? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this time that we, we have to, together, Lord, to sing with one voice of your glory. Lord, this opportunity that we have to, to gather under the authority of, of your word. Lord, let its truth resonate in our spirits, Lord. For those who are struggling with doubts, with fears, with concerns as it looks outward, Lord. I pray that your word this morning would be like a rock beneath their feet. I pray that those who are are weary this morning, those who have doubts, Lord, that your word would, would breathe the fire of conviction in their spirits. Lord, may we know the freedom of hope and faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you work? Would you speak? And in Jesus' name, amen. So in Mark 15, verse 1, I want us to see, like right in the beginning, we see this transition. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. See, Jesus was arrested during the night hours. If you remember that the movement of a day, the day came to an end on Thursday when the sun set and the first three stars could be seen in the night sky. When that happened, it became the morning of Friday. During the night, under the cover of darkness, the religious leaders came and they arrested Jesus. Because they were afraid of what the crowds would think. All those supporters who had sang, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. We don't want to make them mad. So they hoped that if they arrested Jesus under the cover of darkness, that that darkness would hide their own true motivations. 
And so they arrested Jesus, and they brought all these witnesses, these, these false witnesses that began to hurl accusations at Jesus, but none of them could agree, right? They're all conflicting with one another, and you can see almost this panic arise in the religious leaders until they finally ask this direct question that in many ways is like the climax in the Gospel of Mark. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? This is what everything in the Gospel of Mark has been pointing to, right? Like in the beginning, who is Jesus? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And over and over again, he asked this question, and and he asked it of the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do others say that I am? This has been revealed to you by God, and now here it is. On the center stage, the religious leaders, the truth was on their lips, and yet far from their hearts. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And listen to Jesus' response. I am. I am. And he doesn't stop there. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is back in chapter 14, verses 62 through 64, I believe. Have you ever heard this question, did Jesus ever claim to be God? Like I, I had a, a young Muslim man come to my office in, while I was pastoring in Maryland, and he was from a Muslim family, and he was curious about Jesus, but he also had a lot of doubts of what his family had told him. And he was like, did Jesus ever actually claim to be God? Because he didn't. That's just something you Christians have projected on Jesus, who was a prophet, but not God. Did he ever claim to be God? And I brought him to this passage. And I was like, as clear as day, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? I am. And as I read these verses to him, I watched as the Holy Spirit awakened his heart with understanding and gave him the gift of faith to trust on Christ there in my office. This is the the reality This is what Christ says. But the thing is, is he doesn't end there. And and A.D. talked about this last week. Do you remember when he said, Jesus is actually quoting from Daniel 7 in Psalm 110 when he says this. And and this is a a way that rabbis would teach in the moment. It's called a remez. It's where they say part of a verse because they know that you understand the whole. So he's talking to religious leaders. And when Jesus says, I am... And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. They know that what Jesus is quoting here is again acknowledging that not only is he God, not only is he the Messiah, but he is the eternal judge. Listen to these verses in Ho. In Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away for his kingdom. is one that shall not be destroyed. Here's what I want you to see. As Tim Keller writes in his book, Jesus the King, 
He says, of all the things that Jesus could have said, and there's so many texts, there's so many themes and images and metaphors and passages of the Hebrew scriptures that could have been used to tell who he was. He specifically says that he is the judge. By his choice of text, Jesus is deliberately forcing us to see the paradox. See, there's been this enormous reversal. Here are these religious leaders who think that they are judging Jesus. They are putting him on trial. And in quoting this verse, Jesus is saying, I am the judge. I am the judge not just in this situation. I am the judge of all peoples, in all nations, in all languages. And we see this irony playing out. And, and the thing that if it wasn't so sad, it, it would be humorous is that these religious leaders think they have power, right? They want Jesus dead. But the reason why we have verse 1 in chapter 15 is because these religious leaders had absolutely no authority. See, they could condemn Jesus, but they couldn't punish him to death. That right only lied with the Roman authorities. These religious leaders were just pawns. They were just playing things out. But they ultimately had to bring Jesus to Pilate for him to be put to death. And there's this urgency that we're going to see in the religious leaders because it's Friday. And if you understand the cultural context, when the sun sets on Friday, the Sabbath begins, the the Shabbat. That means no more walking around, no more trials, no more uh, trying to see Jesus killed. This, if this is going to happen, it has to happen today. There's this desperation. We have until the sun sets to kill Jesus. And we're going to see that then throughout this. And so they bring him to Pilate. And they begin to, to hurl accusations. They bring him in the morning. The sun rises. They have to get the day started. Pilate normally isn't in Jerusalem. His main house was in Caesarea. He's only here because it's the Passover, because pilgrims are here. So now's the time. Before he goes back home to Caesarea, now's the time. Take him to Pilate and have Jesus killed. And they bring the accusations again and again. And Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? In verse 2. And Jesus answers him, You have said so. Here's the thing I want us to see in this narrative of Pilate. He is the person in power. He is the, the Roman governor over this province. But we are going to see his passivity also play out. He doesn't want to make a decision. He doesn't want to make people upset. This is an example, I believe, for us of what it looks like to walk the path of unbelief. Where perception does not lead to conviction. And so Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer is curious, isn't it? You have said so. What does this mean? What is Jesus? He was so frank, so direct with the religious leaders when they asked him, when he says, I am. But to Pilate, he says, you have said so. And I think this is for two different reasons. The first is this. 
it puts the responsibility on the person asking the question. You have said so. See, over and over again, I have found that people who have objections to Christianity haven't thought deeply about anything. They are just parroting other people's ideas. Have you ever had that? Like, well, what about this? Or what about that? And they're not even thinking about what they're saying. It's just this smokescreen, so I don't have to think too deeply about this. So I don't actually have to determine what's true or what's not true. I just want to keep coasting through life. So let me throw out these things that I've heard. Isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Well, what about this? Or what about that? And they're simply parroting things. And by Jesus's answer, it's forcing Pilate to have to reconcile the words that were just on his lips. Because like the religious leaders, Pilate has just said what is true. Are you the king of the Jews? Though the truth was on his lips, it was far from his heart. And Jesus forces it back into the person who's asking the question. I think the second reason is this. Jesus is king, but not in the way that Pilate thinks. See, Pilate is not just a biblical character. He's a historical figure. He was known to, he doesn't actually care at all about the Jews. There was even questions with how he came up into power, because maybe this is just who he's married to. So he's just trying to make Rome happy. He's annoyed by the religious beliefs and practices of the Jews. He thinks there's, they're, they're backwoods, they're uneducated, to the point where historians actually tell us that Pilate brought flags with Roman gods and marched them around the Temple Mount to the fury of the Jews. He doesn't care if people think he's the Messiah or not. All he's trying to do is keep the peace so that he has the approval of Rome. And so the only thing that he's worried about is if he's king of the Jews, and this is how people are seeing him, is this going to be a threat? Is this going to disrupt things and put him at disapproval with Rome? And so Jesus, in his response is alluding to the fact that, yes, he's king, but not in the way that Pilate is assuming. And we know this because in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, we see more fully the answer of Jesus when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of the world. And at this, I can almost imagine the desperation of the religious leaders. Like, oh no, we can't let Pilate begin to back up. We can't let Pilate let him go free. This has to happen today. And so verse 3 says that they began, the religious leaders began to hurl accusations at Jesus. They accused him of many things. Luke 23 verse 2 tells us some of those things that they were accusing him of. And it says, and, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is, is the Messiah. He himself is a king. Do you see what's happening in the, the, these religious leaders? They have outright lied to condemn Jesus. Remember when they went to the Temple Mount and they tried to trap Jesus and they're like, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They wanted him to say no so they could make this accusation. But this isn't what Jesus said, is it? He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's 
and give to God what is God's. And they went away shamed. They couldn't trap Jesus. But now standing before Pilate, truth doesn't matter anymore. They are hurling accusations, true and false, at him so Pilate would condemn him to death. But Jesus was silent. He didn't answer. Verse 4 and 5, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus was silent. He said nothing more. And Pilate was amazed, amazed at his silence. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? Once again, Jesus remained silent as a fulfillment of prophecy that we read about over and over in the book of Isaiah. What's the point of speaking truth when people have their own agenda? Sometimes the accusations and the slander have an agenda behind them. They don't care about truth. They're not seeking truth. They're seeking their own agenda. It takes wisdom to know when to speak and when to remain silent as Christians. Now here's the thing. We begin to see Pilate. He sees what's happening. He's not a fool. And now he's like, maybe I can start to play with politics. Let's have some political maneuvering. Because around this time, during the feast, he would normally release somebody. So as part of this passive response, he doesn't want to say no and just free Jesus and tell these religious leaders to go away because he needed the religious leaders to help maintain the peace. So he wanted them on his side. He, he also wanted to make sure he had the approval of Rome. And so he's trying to figure out, how do I maneuver this so that everybody likes me? Let's just put it on the people and let them decide. Because typically around this time, you would let somebody free. And so if they let the, Jesus free then nobody can be mad at me. And so this is the political maneuvering that we begin to see Pilate go for. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. He could see what was going on. But he didn't want to make a decision. Here's the thing. Anybody who has ever led know that as soon as you make a decision, somebody's not going to like it. Like everybody's not going to like you all the time when you're making a decision. And so he puts it out, and, and in the providence of God, what we see unfold in this is this beautiful illustration of the gospel. Because the people want Barabbas to be freed, not Jesus. Now, here's the thing, Barabbas, if you look at his name, have you ever heard like in the Lord's Prayer, Abba, Father? If you see the bar Abba, it literally means son of father. He is a son of father in the same way that Jesus is son of God. We see these two lifted up and portrayed. 
We have this son of a father who is guilty, an insurrectionist, a murderer, a thief, who is obviously guilty and imprisoned. And we have Jesus, guiltless, king, creator. Who do I set free? And the people cry out for Barabbas. And in this we see the Gospel illustrated. That you and I are like Barabbas. You and I are the guilty. You and I are the rebels against the one who created us. You and I are the one who have guilt. And Jesus is the guiltless Savior who stands in our place. And the political maneuvering misfires. Though Pilate perceives what's happening, he has no conviction or backbone to do what is right. He perceived the agenda. But the religious leaders were there to stir up the crowd, release Barabbas, release Barabbas. And then Pilate asked, then what should I do with Jesus? What do I do with him? And again, the religious leaders, they're stirring up the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. Until the ones who once sang, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, now hear in their own mouth the words being formed, crucify him, crucify him. Over and over. And here's the thing in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The truth was sacrificed for the sake of peace. To satisfy the crowd. I believe that there is a very real danger for Christians today to follow the same path that we see here of Pilate. Think about what this means. We want to be liked, right? We want people's approval about us. We want to maintain our reputation, We may perceive what is true, but do we have the conviction to speak it, to say it, to stand on it, to allow it to be a foundation beneath our feet? What happens when we are in the classroom? What happens when we are in the workplace? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to be made right with God? So what are you saying about other religions? Are they not right? Or so are they all going to hell? Do you really believe that? See, if you were educated, if you were smart, if you weren't just some backwoods person believing some ancient text is for today, then you wouldn't believe any of that. Who do we seek approval from? Who are we trying to satisfy with the way we live and the convictions we hold? Is it Jesus? Is it God who made us? Or are we seeking the approval of the crowd? I believe that this is a question we need to honestly reflect on in our hearts. Who are you afraid of? 
Who are you trying to satisfy? What friends, what co-workers, what family members? Do you shape what you say, what you believe, because you're more concerned with how they view you rather than your standing before a holy God? First Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this, We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. We preach that Jesus Christ is the only way to be made right before holy God. That God is the creator of heaven and on earth. And mankind has rebelled against God, but God in His grace and mercy pursued us relentlessly to the point of sending His own Son to die on the cross who rose again on the third day. And that if you place your faith and trust on Jesus Christ, you will stand in the presence of God guiltless, redeemed, covered, forgiven for all eternity. And if you reject Jesus, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. This is the Gospel. We preach Christ crucified. And yes, this is a stumbling block for some. Yes, there are others who will call it foolishness and uneducated. But there are also those who are being called who the Holy Spirit is drawing to Himself from both of these camps. And Christ is the power of God. And He is the wisdom of God. Here's my heart and my prayer that I would rather stand in surrendered silence with my bruised and beaten Savior than to hear my voice mock the One who saved me. Again, I pray that this would be a foundation beneath our feet in a fire of conviction in our bones. I would rather stand in silence with my bruised and beaten Savior than to hear my voice mock the one who saved me. I pray that this is a conviction within our bones because bruised and beaten he was. And the same will be true of those who follow him. The Gospel of Mark is one of discipleship and one that lays out clearly that those who follow Jesus will endure the same and similar sufferings as our Savior. We do not say as disciples that Christ suffered and now I have an easy life. We say Christ is the treasure. And I'm laying down my life for His glory. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd in verse 15, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. These three words, having scourged Jesus. Paul does not make, sorry, Mark does not make a huge deal of the physical sufferings of Jesus. He focuses more on the theological and the emotional of what was happening. 
want us to understand the context of what is happening. William Lane in his commentary says, a Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. These three words that can be quickly read, they scourged him and led him away to be crucified. But this was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped and bound to a post or pillar or sometimes simply thrown to the ground and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument indicated by the Markan text, the dreaded flagellum, was a scourge consisting of these leather straps that were plated together with several pieces of bone and lead weaved in with them to form this type of chain. And there was no maximum number of strokes that was prescribed by Roman law. If you read in Scripture where it talks about 39 times, that's a, a, a way of saying beaten within an inch of your life. Because to say 40 times was the death penalty. To say 39 times meant that we're going to beat you just up until the point where you're dead. William Lane goes on to say that the men condemned to flagellation frequently collapsed and died from the flogging. Josephus, a first century historian, records that he himself had some of his opponents in Galilee scourged until their entrails were visible. While the procurator Albinus had a, a false prophet scourged until his bones lay visible. They would make you reach around and, and hold a post so that it spread out your shoulder blades to expose your back. He was beaten, flesh ripped from his back till muscle and bones would have appeared. He was scourged and then delivered to be crucified. Verse 16 says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, 600 men, battle-hardened soldiers who surrounded Jesus. They placed on his back. They clothed him in purple cloak. If we just stop and think for a moment, the raw flesh of his back, the purple cloak placed on it as blood dried into the wounds, the crown of thorns placed on his head, They put it on him and they began to salute mockingly. Again, words on their lips, but the meaning far from their hearts. Hail, King of the Jews! As they beat him, hit him with a reed, spit on him, pulled at his beard, kneeling down in homage before him in mockery. One day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet in this moment in humorous mockery, they mocked Him. And then as the blood from the wounds dried into the purple cloak, they ripped it from His back. And they put His own clothes on Him. And they let him out to crucify him. As 
as we close today, I want us to feel the weight of this one clear question. Why did Jesus suffer so? Like, why did he suffer so? Because my fear is this. There is something that we will take away from these verses that could cause us to miss what is most important. See, if what you take away from this is, is the, the jealousy of the religious leaders who because of their own pride and insecurity falsely condemned Jesus and look at how terrible they are if they hadn't been so insecure, if they had been more open, then this never would have happened. If we look at Pilate and we say he had a position of power, he had a responsibility to stand up for what's true, but because he had no backbone and he only wanted to satisfy the crowd, if only we had a righteous leader, then everything would be better. And this wouldn't have happened. If we look at the crowd and we say if only they had thought for themselves, if they weren't just parroting the, the leaders and what the what, what those religious leaders wanted, if they just thought for themselves, would they have cried out to crucify Him, crucify Him? And we can lay the blame at their feet. What do we take away from these verses? Why did Jesus suffer so? And here's what I want us to feel this morning. Jesus gives us the answer. He tells us why, and I want us to feel the weight and the refreshing beauty of what His words say to us this morning. So I want to invite you, just close your eyes and hear these words of Jesus. I am the Good Shepherd. I'm the Good Shepherd. And I know my own. In my own, they know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for you. And, and there's people that I'm calling to myself that are not yet part of the fold, that I must bring them also, and they will listen and they will hear my voice. And so there will be one flock, and there will be one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me because. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Do you hear it? Why did Jesus suffer so? Because He has people. By the blood of the Lamb, He is redeeming people of His own to make one people with one shepherd. The religious leaders did not take Jesus' life. The failure of Pilate did not take Jesus' life. The crowd did not take Jesus' life. He voluntarily laid down His life to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might hear His voice. He suffered so because He chose to die to redeem people for Himself. Do you see the beauty?
of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the only thing that I can think to, what do we take away from this? Some passages call us to live differently, but some call us to believe. This passage is inviting us to believe, to place our hope and trust in Jesus. This is why it was written. To build a foundation beneath our feet. Do you believe that the gospel, the beauty of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, or do you mockingly sing? Do you perceive and yet lack any conviction? May God give us the faith to trust on Him. And so if you have, if you're like, yes, I believe by God's grace, I believe, then I think our response is to sing and to rejoice together. That we have done nothing to earn or deserve salvation. It is a gift. And what can we say but thank you? Thank you. I've done nothing. I am the guilty Barabbas. You are guiltless and died in my place. Thank you. And for those who do not yet believe, who still have doubt in your heart, I pray, I pray that you would ask that the Holy Spirit give you understanding in the faith to believe on Jesus. I would love the opportunity to talk with you, to pray with you, to process this together. You are not alone in this journey. And so I want to invite you, if you have questions, if you have doubts, if you're processing this, please come and talk with me. Let's set up a time to get coffee, to get breakfast or lunch together. And let's talk. Let's explore this together. Because it matters. It matters. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you voluntarily laid down your life even to the point of being scourged, of being crucified on the cross. Lord, that you had done nothing wrong and yet you willingly laid down your life to call us your own, to make us one people, to make us your sons and daughters. Lord, what can we say but thank you? Lord, would you be glorified in our life, in our testimony, in our voice? Lord, in the midst of the crowds that we face in midst of the voices that we seek to satisfy and the reputations we hope to keep, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to know when to speak with convictions, to say, I am, I am a follower of Christ. Whatever you may think of me, I am. And Lord, and give us the wisdom and discernment to when we need to remain silent. Lord, would you be glorified? And in Jesus' name, amen.